0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema.
0: This is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back to complete our trilogy of Florida movies. Uh, Now, recently on Weird House Cinema, we looked at the movie Frogs, starring Sam Elliott, which is Mm -hmm. about as Florida as a movie can get. Uh, And then we also recently discussed the movie Zat, which is about a man who dreamed he was a catfish and then turned himself into one, though didn't really look like a catfish, uh, but just sort of like went around settling grudges and and getting revenge in semi-catfish form. And it's more Florida again. This time, it's going to be Florida Nazi Zombies. That's
1: right. We're going to be looking at the 1977 film Shockwaves. Uh, I believe it was actually filmed in in 1975. So it's still a few years later than our two previous Florida films. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it it is very much a product of the 1970s. And it is, uh, I should make it clear here, it's actually supposed to take place on a Caribbean island. But it's very much filmed in Florida. And I think it's ultimately a Florida movie to its core. It has elements in common with our previous two picks, but it's also doing its own thing.
0: You know, I think it's fitting that we discuss our final Florida movie today because I have to be honest and say I am, I, I am running like, – right now my gas tank is full of sand. So, Rob, <laughs> I hope you can bring the life to, to inject into this podcast today. I'm going to do my best.
1: All right. All right. Well, I have my tea here, so hopefully that will uh, invigorate me as well. OK. Um, so, yeah, this this movie has things in common with both Zat and Frogs, but it's, it's very much doing its own thing because for starters, it's a zombie movie. Furthermore, it digs into two different subgenres of zombie movies by being both an aquatic zombie movie and a Nazi zombie movie. And, you know, it's it's pretty early in either of these subgenre traditions. And I think you could also make a strong case that this is this this film might be the true trendsetter, if not one of the key trendsetters for both.
0: You know, I think I've said on the show before that of all the different types of creatures in horror movies i feel like on average it's zombie movies that are the most often trying to say something with the story they tell you know that z- zombies for some reason just lend themselves quite well to cultural commentary this movie i don't think it's trying to say anything <laughs> no i i don't think it is i i I think
1: you, you can lean into we'll, we'll discuss you might be able to lean into it a little bit and draw mm-hmm. maybe a little bit of nuance from it but for the most part this is a film that just wants to scare you and have some creepy stuff going on in it and, and it ultimately succeeds
0: yeah 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 this is a, a a I would say a success on the front of a stylish horror movie And that the, the creatures look creepy and you spend a lot of this movie just looking at them they're just mm-hmm. like popping up out of the water popping up from behind roots kind of like you know, you might uh, open a drawer in the kitchen and there's one of these zombies in there and it's just looking up at you with those goggles and uh and yeah th- that's what it does it does it well and i give it all all credit
1: yeah so so we'll talk about the the zombies in this film a bit more now and on the the zombie front um on the nazi zombie front rather there there are only a handful of cinematic predecessors to this movie um there was 1943's Revenge of the Zombies, which had John Carradine in it, who's also in this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and That
0: involved a mad scientist trying to create zombies for the Third Reich. But and wait it a minute. Also... Hasn't, it, hasn't it been proven that John Carradine is actually in all films ever made? <laughs> Just about.
1: Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll do a proper breakdown on Carradine in a bit. But he's come up before
0: because, he, yeah, he has a tremendous filmography. Oh, wait um, a minute. I, I challenge you. Name a film John Carradine was, was not in. You can't do it. Within his lifetime, or well,
1: he was actually in some films outside of his lifetime, which we'll get, we'll discuss. Uh, but it, but um, yeah, there was also a 1966 film called The Frozen Dead, which had thawed Nazi zombies in it, uh, and there are a, a, a handful of other films that also involved Nazis and the occult as part of a general trend in science fiction and horror, as well as New Age and conspiracy uh, thinking, uh, because the filmmakers behind Shockwaves they uh, they're pretty upfront about citing a 19 Sixty book titled The Morning of the Magicians as a prime influence. So this, I, I think we've briefly discussed this book before talking about um like ancient alien uh, stuff before, but this was a popular book in conspiracy theory circles, remains popular in conspiracy theory circles because it entails just a whole host of their favorite topics like UFOs and Nazi occultism and so forth.
0: Though it's funny, we think about the, uh, I don't know, the occult Nazi subgenre as a, as a, I don't know, the the special remit of sort of obscure Drek in the film world. But it's easy to forget that some of the most mainstream movies ever got into this territory. Mm-hmm. This is what Indiana Jones is about. It's all yeah. like occult Nazi stuff.
1: Yeah, Raiders of the Lost Ark is um, is is the biggest uh, non-sea occultist film of all time. And later on, you had uh, uh, Guillermo del Toro's Hellboy got oh, into yeah. the same territory. Uh, yeah. But but that was that was a, a little bit later. Um, initially, like Shockwaves was a, was a big trendsetter. There was a film in 1980 called Zombie Lake that I think was a French-Spanish production that was, I think, heavily inspired by Shockwaves, if not just kind of a um, you know, very very much followed in its uh, its footsteps, uh, because you went on to see uh, people like Joel Schumacher get involved in uh, the Nazi zombie subgenre, like two thousand nine's Blood Creek. You see it in all sorts of video games, so it's become something that that um, sci fi and horror has really latched onto, and I think a lot of that probably has to do with just the simple formula of taking. You know, human evil and supernatural evil and combining them taking traditional movie villains and traditional movie monsters and combining them. And maybe if you're, you know, daring to get a little contemplative, you might say, you know, the fear of reemergence of a dreadful and destructive ideology plus. The, just the, the like the, the 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 obvious metaphor of reanimated corpses
0: oh yeah I mean that would be an interesting thematic resonance though I don't think I can honestly say that th- this movie seems like it had that on its mind no 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 th- that would that would that would be an add-on if you just think too hard about shockwaves right if you, if you were to try to make uh, an intellectually curious zombie Nazi movie that would be a good direction to go with it
1: yeah oh uh, but I should mention on the aquatic zombie front um, there aren't, aren't a lot of films that maybe come to mind in this category. There's 1979's Zombie from uh, Lucio Fulci, which, uh, which had a, a pretty tremendous scene with a, an underwater zombie, a shark, and uh, I think a snorkeler. Um, it's been yeah, a while since I've seen Zombie.
0: It's best remembered for the zombie fighting the shark. And I think the zombie wins. I think it like bites the shark and, and oh, okay. defeats it. Well, it, it is called Zombie, not Shark. So
1: that makes sense. But that was well, 79. Wait, that now was, I
0: can't stand by that. Sorry.
1: <laughs> I'm not sure. Maybe it's a draw. I don't know. Okay, uh, But at any rate, that that came after Shockwaves, um, mm-hmm. a film that came before it, that just barely was the the Ghost Galleon from 1974. That was one of Amando Diosario's Blind Dead films. Uh, I don't know if you've seen any of these, Joe. They're They're pretty low budget, and they have a bunch of undead Templars uh, engaging in um, – generally, they're just chasing people down and killing them. But in this particular one,
0: they're engaging in some beach and underwater horror. Oh, well, so the undead Templars connects to a thing I was going to ask you about, which is I was trying to think if there is – something else like that you know because there are tons of these Nazi zombie movies if there's something else like that like a group of, like it's all zombies but they're united by something they had in common in life maybe like they are a certain type of soldier yep. uh, and I really couldn't think I could think of tons of Nazi zombie movies but couldn't really think of many other examples so it makes me think that what's attractive about this subgenre is not that it's like oh they are you know they they all have this in common, and then they become undead. It's the specific historical resonances of, of the Nazis. And I I think that's I think you're exactly right when you say it's probably as simple as what's the evilest human thing you can think of, mm-hmm. and then just make it supernatural.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so. And it remains a, a winning formula, like now more so than ever.
0: But anyway, the Templars thing here you say, that would be one counterexample. Okay, here's something else. This is like, they're all Templars, and now they're Templar zombies.
1: Yes. <laughs> and maybe there's some other examples out there in the, the film world that uh, I'm just not uh, aware of. So if, if there if there's something like maybe there's are there zombie samurai films? I don't know. I, I nothing's hmm. coming to mind, but maybe I'm missing something obvious. Are there zombie Chicago Bears or like a specific sports team? a zombie f- that that sounds like it could be like a good sort of um feel like good movie you know yeah. where it's <laughs> like there's nothing in the rule book that says a team of zombies can't take to the field and uh, try to win the super bowl and then it happens and it's magical for everybody
0: you producers out there we're just feeding you gold day after day i know hey, i know you got to send us the checks
1: All right, let's get to the elevator pitch for this film. Uh, It's pretty simple. Aquatic Nazi zombies left over from World War II rise from the deep in the Caribbean to hunt down tourists through a desolated beach resort in the (laughs) mid-1970s.
0: Yeah. With Peter Cushing. Yes. Uh, Peter Cushing just happens to be in the mix. All right, let's have some of that trailer audio. You are now in the deep end of horror. shockwaves once they were almost human you mean to say that what we all saw out there is just a mirage it was a minor underwater disturbance with a hot sky acting on a cold current coming from a mile down below something unknown something unforeseen something unspeakable lives below and it lives to destroy Ah! They have risen. All
1: right, so who directed this thing? This film was directed by Ken (laughs) Weiderhorn, director uh, and writer. And while this was his big breakout film, he went on to direct a number of genre features, including Eyes of a Stranger, Return of the Living Dead 2, Dark Tower, which I believe is a haunted skyscraper movie. I haven't actually seen it. And he also directed seven episodes of Freddy's Nightmares, as well as A House in
0: the Hills. Uh I think I have seen Dark Tower. I think somehow I just found that on the internet one night and put it on and it was uh it was pretty bad. Uh Return of the Living Dead 2 I haven't seen, but Return of the Living Dead 1 is one of my favorite comedy horror movies. That that mm-hmm. movie is near perfect.
1: Yeah, Dan O'Bannon on that yeah. one. Yeah, that's that's a great one.
0: Yeah, but I've heard that the second one Uh, is still – I've heard it described as still pretty fun, but uh, sort of taking the premise of the first movie to a kind of Looney Tunes uh, (laughs) elevation. All right.
1: Now, I mentioned Viderhorn was uh, was was one of the writers. The co-writer on this was John Kent Harrison, who enjoyed quite a writing and directing career after this. So not a lot of stuff that I'm personally familiar with, uh, but his credits include 1999's You Know My Name starring Sam Elliott, mm. uh, as well as a bear named Winnie, which I think is <laughs> like a Winnie the Pooh, or it's a, maybe it's a biopic about the, the creator of Winnie the Pooh. It okay. starred uh, Michael Fassbender as Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> um, Michael Fassbender was in, I think he was in a Nazi zombie movie, the one directed by Joel Schumacher, by the way. Okay. Um, as well as Stephen Fry uh, was also in that. Wow! Uh, he, yeah. Also uh, responsible for The Courageous Heart of Irene Sindler, starring Anna Paquin. So, yeah, this guy went on to, to do a lot of stuff and is still active.
0: Did the writer of Shockwaves write Mr. Holland's opus?
1: <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. But that's like the this, this sort of genre of film that he seemed to have gone on to. Uh-huh. All right. Well, let's talk about the cast here. Uh, top billing, and we've already mentioned him. Uh, Peter Cushing is in this. Uh, he plays SS commander, no given name for this character. They're light on names. Oh, in that's this film. right.
0: He never says his name. Yeah. Yep. Doesn't introduce himself. Also, I I don't think he even tries a German accent, does he? I don't recall one. It, no. It's a little. It's a little German.
1: It's oh, okay. Um, it's very clearly identifiable as Peter Cushing. It's Peter Cushing like Germaned up ten percent.
0: Basically.
1: Okay. Apologies
0: oh. for misremembering.
1: <laughs> so Peter Cushing, of course, lived 1913 through 1994. This, uh, he's a legend. This is Hammer's Dr. Frankenstein. This is Star Wars Grand Moff Tarkin. Enthusiastic war gamer and the man with the sharpest cheekbones in the biz. He can use multiple
0: parts of his face as an ice pick.
1: Yeah. <laughs> this um, uh, I used to own the Blue Underground DVD of this film and somehow lost it mm-hmm. uh, but I remember in the various extras on that uh, they, t- they talked to some of the cast members on this and they talked about w- working with Peter Cushing and like everybody else it seems they just had nice things to say about him he was just like a total professional super nice and, and like I, I think the only even slightly negative thing is like is one of the actors said something to the effect of like yeah he showed up and he was he just had all his lines memorized and he was so professional that he he made me feel like a little crappy for not, not being as on top of things as he was. Um, but yeah, everybody seems to have loved Cushing.
0: That's something I'm always kind of curious about when you hear those little uh, things about which actors memorize their lines and which ones don't.
1: Yeah, uh, Cushing was, uh, I think he was one of, yeah, he was a total pro. Like he, it didn't matter what caliber of film it was, he showed up and he did the job. All right, uh, did we mention, you? Yeah, we did mention John Carradine is in this. yeah. He has the distinction of playing the only character with a last
0: name. Really? Uh, he plays, yeah. He plays Captain Ben Morris. I don't say really because I uh, am surprised nobody else had a last name. I'm surprised because I didn't remember him having one.
1: No, but maybe that was one of his demands. He's like, I'll do it, but but you've got to give me a, a last name. I'm not playing a character with just a first name or no name. You leave that to Cushing.
0: Oh, he's kind of grizzled in this.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, this is another... Another film legend, certainly a horror screen legend. He was in any and everything from 1930 to 1995. Yes, seven years after his death, a little film called Jacko that I think you've seen.
0: Yeah, I don't even know how to describe that one. It's like a it's an Omega grade uh, direct to video Halloween themed movie Mm -hmm. that has him in scenes where he is not on screen with anybody else because I think the footage his footage in the movie appears to have been shot approximately 17 years before (laughs) the rest of the film. Otherwise it's got like Linnea Quigley and a bunch of teenagers running around getting attacked by this thing with a pumpkin head. I think.
1: Okay. Sounds like a winning concept. Uh, So, yeah, was he was in a lot of indie and horror films, but we have to remember he was also in The Grapes of Wrath. He was in Stagecoach. He was in The Ten Commandments, which also featured Vincent Price, uh, speaking of horror icons. Yeah. And of course, John Carradine uh, was the is the was also notable as the patriarch of the the Carradine family, the father mm-hmm. of David, Keith, and Robert Carradine, who all carried on this tradition of being in you know all all different sorts of films, and uh, but also doing a good job. Like Carradine mm-hmm. is always John Carradine is always
0: watchable. I was really hoping he would sing a song in this one, though. You like, <laughs> couldn't he, so he's done the night train to Mundo Fine. Could he? Could he not come up with a you know the. Uh, Island of the Shockwaves. It seems like they, they should have put in the effort.
1: <laughs> I've, uh, I've I've I either read or remember from digital I'm uh, uh, not digital underground blue underground uh, DVD that uh, that he did all of his stunts in this, which don't really amount to a lot. <laughs> but he was 71 years old at the time, uh-huh. and like he did like all the physicality that was asked of him in this. So uh, oh, oh he's so quite a trooper
0: at the part when you see his dead body under the glass as uh, so they, they have the, they like ride a glass bottom boat over his corpse and he's mm-hmm. there shirtless with his hair swinging around in the water so that's him that's Yeah him. yeah that believe okay. so yeah all right
1: all right the uh, so that they these guys get top billing you know mm-hmm. cuz they're the horror icons and they're the ones you want to put on your horror poster but the real star like our lead uh, and our, our our main hero is the character Rose played by Brooke Adams born 1949
0: I love Brooke Adams. Brooke Adams is in one of my all-time favorite horror movies, the nineteen seventy-eight remake of *Invasion of the Body Snatchers*, which you've never seen is just excellent, just one of the one of the best ever made. This is the the Philip Kaufman one. Yes, yes,
1: yeah. So at the time of, uh, of *Shockwave*, she was uh, an Indian TV actor, though she had appeared uncredited, I think a very bit role in nineteen seventy-four as the Great Gatsby. Uh, but her, yeah, her career took off, off after Shockwaves, maybe because of Shockwaves. I don't know. Uh, she was in Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven the following year. Uh-huh. Uh, you already mentioned Body Snatchers. Uh, she also went on to star opposite Christopher Walken in David Cronenberg's adaptation of Stephen King's The Dead Zone. Oh, uh, yeah. She was in The Stuff, uh, The Unborn, and she did a whole lot of TV work. And as a bit of trivia, she's been married to actor Tony Shalhoub since 1992.
0: Oh, I had no idea. Yeah. Uh yeah, Brooke Adams is great. She's uh she's got that great screen presence that kind of just instantly likable always. Yeah. Yeah, she checks off all the major boxes for
1: female lead in a 70s horror film in this while also like like having that that extra uh you know bit of charisma and talent you know you could it's not surprising that she went on to be in all these other things you know uh uh, there's sometimes just the way she delivers certain lines in this that might otherwise be throwaway lines she's able to Mm -hmm. inject a certain amount of nuance or comedy into it
0: yeah okay so who's our mustache for the movie
1: Oh, well, this is Luke Halpin playing Keith. Uh, uh, Halpin was born in 1947. Uh, A handsome fellow with a maximum mid-70s mustache. Mm -hmm. And uh, his main uh, claim to fame prior to this is that he played the character Sandy Ricks. Uh, a, a child in the 1963 film Flipper opposite Chuck Connors and then played the same role in the TV show to follow. Um, though in this, it, the TV show did not have Chuck Connors and a dolphin. It had Brian Kelly and a dolphin. Fun fact, Brian Kelly has a single executive producer credit on IMDb and it's for Blade Runner. <laughs> but anyway, Halpin's good in this. I liked him. Yeah. Maybe I- it's his mustache. I don't know.
0: Oh, we can call him the Mustache Runner from here on out. I I was thinking he's very seventies to me. He looks like one of the members of Stillwater. You know mm. that he looks like he just lost four cases of beer playing cards with Humble Pie.
1: Yeah, yeah. I he, mean, he's got a certain. Ch- I mean, he's no he's no Sam Elliott. You know but uh but uh, but he has a he has a certain laid back mid seventies style to him that that works well in the film and and he's 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 also decent at at bringing across a certain level of fear and anxiety that of course becomes absolutely necessary in a film like this,
0: yeah, now, the rest of the cast just sort of is rounded out mostly by these people playing tourists who are zombie fodder, yeah, and
1: uh and I'm not sure how many of them are, are necessarily worth um spending a lot of time on. But they're all pretty good in their role. You have this guy, Fred uh, uh, Butch, I believe it is. Uh, lived 35 through 2012. Yeah, plays the character Chuck, uh, this is a guy who had various uh, roles in 80s movies, including Cocoon and Caddyshack. Hmm. And uh, he looks like he was in another Florida movie, this time a slasher titled Nightmare Beach from 1989 that Umberto Lindsay was involved in. Uh, and that also featured Michael Parks and John Saxon. Uh, I, but, was, yeah.
0: I was thinking of Chuck in this movie as Bacardi Man. I didn't know what yep. his name was. So I, I just called him Bacardi Man the whole time.
1: Yeah, he he has a signature look, often shirtless, sometimes just in tidy whities running around on a on on the the deck of a ship. Uh, mm-hmm. he's 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 great cuz he's kind of like your you always have to have your your array of characters from detestable to likable or lovable and he's a, he's nicely s- situated in the middle. You know, you don't really hate him, but he's not you're not going to be that disappointed when a, a zombie kills him.
0: He also has a seemingly out-of-character freak-out toward the end of the movie. That's pretty amusing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but then we also have, like, this angry, aggressive nerd character named Norman. Yes, Norman
1: is great, played by Jack Davidson, born 1936. This actor did a lot of small parts in films, including uh, 87's The Secret of My Success, 83's Trading Places. In this, he is a used car salesman on vacation with his wife, Beverly, and uh, oh man, he is not satisfied, and he will be speaking to your manager.
0: Yes, he he exudes not satisfied with my service. That is his personality.
1: Yeah, uh, Beverly is great in, in this too, uh, played by DJ Sydney. But she
0: wasn't really in much beyond this. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then there's also Dobbs. He's like Bacardi Man Number Two. There, this movie has multiple Bacardi Men. Dobbs is your straight Bacardi Man, though.
1: He yeah. he is going to drink the Bacardi straight. No, no mixers, no ice, and he will have it for breakfast. Uh, he plays our uh, the, the dive boat's alcoholic cook, and I guess like sort of general, like boat guy, um, played by cola based actor uh, uh, Don Stout. Um, who lived 1923 through 2004, and even he's good in this. It's kind of a, a you know throwaway uh, role, I guess, but he's he's mm-hmm. amusing. He's this yeah, just this um, this alcoholic boat guy who you know is not going to make it far into the film, but is is also not you know you're not he's not hateable.
0: He has an interesting death scene. We'll get to later on.
1: Yeah. Uh, in this uh, is in a small role, but there's a fisherman that shows up early on, played by the actor Clarence Thomas, who lived 34 through 2009. An actor, And according to IMDb, which, again, can sometimes uh, be incorrect, but uh, IMDb claims he was the first um, African-American Florida branch president of the Screen Actors Guild from 2000 to
0: 2002. So there you Hmm. go. Now, there's one reason I know you must have wanted to do this movie, which is it has an electronic score. Yes. As far as
1: I'm concerned, one of the – and I think this is essential for my understanding of the Florida movie. But, Uh yeah, one of the true stars of this film – Uh, is Richard Einhorn, uh, because he is responsible for Shockwave's uh, tremendous score. I think it's absolutely top shelf, composed and performed by contemporary classic musical composer Richard Einhorn.
0: So this is not an Italian composed score, but I would say it feels Italian to me.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely has some of those vibes going on. It's, um, it 's worth noting that a lot of electronic music in the in the genre uh, score world they come from individuals who, in some cases, they were largely self taught or they came up playing for and working with bands. Uh, Einhorn, however, was a graduate of Columbia University where he studied electronic music and composition under the, uh, uh, some uh, some individuals that are apparently major names uh, you know, in that field of like, like not just uh, popular electronic music, but like, uh, you know, d- classical composition and electronic music like Vladimir uh, Yusachevsky and Mario Davidovsky. And Einhorn went on to compose such works as The Origin, an opera opera. Um, Uh, That was inspired by Charles Darwin's Life and Work with lyrics by poet Catherine Barnett. Interesting. Another composition, Voices of Light, was inspired by the silent Joan of Arc film. And you can find this particular uh, piece of music on Spotify and various other streaming sites.
0: But he also did some trash horror movies.
1: Yep, uh, including se- ultimately several Viderhorn movies. He did Eyes of a Stranger, as well as the. Uh, he also did the the influential 1981
0: slasher film, The Prowler. Oh yeah, that was one we talked about when uh, I was a guest on uh, Movie Crush with uh, with uh, Chuck Bryant and and several of our other friends from the office. We we yeah. talked about slasher movies. That that one's that one's not. I mean th- there really are no slasher movies that are like really good movies maybe Halloween or something but mm-hmm. but that one's uh it, just in terms of slasher style it's got it's got a lot going for it it's got a very menacing looking killer in terms of the costume which is similar to what uh this movie really has going for it
1: Yeah yeah definitely menacing looking adversaries Now Einhorn also did let's see Blood Rage Dead of Winter The Dark Tower but he also composed the scores for um, um, but in particular, uh, the score for 1991's one's *Closet Land*. This starred Madeline Stowe and Alan Rickman, and uh, Philip Glass was involved as in that as well as creative musical supervision. Um, uh, and and from there, he also did various uh, work for documentaries and art films. Hmm. Now, interestingly, uh, Einhorn lost his hearing at the age of fifty-seven, and uh, there's a 2011 New York Times article that details how the use of a hearing loop allowed him to enjoy live music again. So, uh, if, if you're interested, I recommend looking that article up and reading it. It's 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 quite it's quite uh, breathtaking because it gets into the technology a bit, but also just talking to Einhorn about how you know he'd lost his 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 hearing. He thought that he'd never be able to enjoy live uh, musical performances again. And then he he he's trying on this loop, and he went to see uh, Wicked, I think, or something like that. And he said, "I'm not even a fan of of uh, of musicals, but the experience reduced him to tears. You know, because he was wow. he was he was able to to hear this again. So it's a really great read. Well, that's inspiring." Now, the score for Shockwaves, again, I, I, in my opinion, I think it's absolutely great. Legitimately jarring, deeply disturbing. Uh, I think Shockwaves would have ultimately been an interesting film with a different score, but but I'm not sure it would have really succeeded uh, to the level that it does because Einhorn just fills the picture with sonic dread that makes everything else work 10 times as well as it would otherwise. There there are bits where he bleeds in the audio of of like chants from the Third Reich and there are also some really unsettling nature sounds as well, underwater reverberations. There's this disturbing shrieking sound at one point. So the music really, really keeps you on your toes. Let's hear some of it. Now I don't think the score is officially available anywhere in digital form. Sadly, um, you may be able to find some unofficial streams, but but Waxwork Records has it out on vinyl. And I'm again, I'm not a vinyl collector. I don't do not have a record player. But this looks absolutely splendid because it's remastered and it's uh, it's available in seafoam green. The actual record is seafoam green, and then it has some some custom uh, uh, art on the front and on the back, and some new liner notes. So uh, any vinyl final fans out there. uh, if, if If you're interested, check this out. And if you already own it,
0: tell me what it is like. Oh, I may have to order this one. Yeah, it has good art.
1: All right. Uh, I guess a couple of more uh, connections here uh, in, in, in passing. Uh, Alan Ormsby was uh, born 1943. He was responsible for the special makeup we see in the picture of these, uh, these Nazi zombies. And while he worked special makeup in a few films previously, including Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, he also wrote that film and actually served as a screenwriter for many years with credits that include Paul Schrader's Cat People, uh, the 1991 horror anthology film Popcorn, the substitute starring Tom Berringer and its various sequels which i think we've we've talked about in in confused it with other films on oh, okay. that previous episodes of weird
0: house i think uh, but, i think on reflection i have not actually seen that movie i just find it conceptually funny because it's tom <laughs> berenger looking so stern
1: yeah yeah i think that's the main thing he
0: does in it uh, but then also
1: ormsby has an additional story material credit on disney's animated version of mulan huh. so uh yeah strange connections on this one uh but yeah the, the death corps troopers in this do look very creepy with the goggles and the 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 modeled
0: pale flesh
1: and wet seaweed like blonde
0: hair. This is one of those movies that knows it has a great looking monster and so they they just show it. You know, it reminds me of the story about the production of the first Friday the thirteenth movie when they had um Oh, what's his name who's doing the the blood, the makeup effects? Um, uh, Tom Savini. Tom Savini doing the makeup effects and they realized the makeup effects looked so good. They were like, "Well, we got to get we got to put those more on screens." <laughs> they just you kind know, of played it up. You get the sense that's what was going on here. I suspect the the zombies in this movie ended up looking creepier than the director might have hoped, and so we end up just seeing them a lot.
1: Well, let's get into the, the, the plot breakdown for this film. Let's, let's explore shockwaves.
0: Okay. Well, this is one of those movies that starts with a, with a Texas Chainsaw Massacre style, grim voiceover before you get any action or meet any of the characters.
1: Yeah. It wants you to know, you know, this really happened or to a certain extent.
0: The following is a true story about Nazi zombies.
1: Yeah, and and I'll just go ahead and read it verbatim real quick in in, in a creepy voice. Shortly before the start of World War II, the German high command began a secret investigation into the powers of the supernatural. Ancient legend told of a race of warriors who used neither weapons nor shields and whose superhuman power came from within the earth itself. As Germany prepared for war, the SS secretly enlisted a group of scientists to create an invincible soldier. It is known that the bodies of soldiers killed in battle were returned to a secret laboratory near Koblenz, where they were used in a variety of scientific experiments. It was rumored that toward the end of the war, Allied forces met German squads that fought without weapons, killing only with their bare hands. No one knows who they were or what became of them, but one thing is certain. Of all the SS units, there was only one that the Allies never captured a single member of. This is not a true story. No, this is not true at all. Uh, but it does, it, it, it sets the stage, and, um, and you know you're going to see all the, um, the soldiers in the photo again in an altered form. And if you weren't paying attention, don't worry, Peter Cushing will come around later in the film, and he'll basically tell you everything again.
0: Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, you get the a second exposition dump, which somewhat varies from the narration at the beginning, which makes you wonder if Peter Cushing is maybe lying a little bit, or I, I don't know, or maybe, I don't know, maybe I only perceive the differences. Anyway, so it, we start off with a fishing boat rescue. There are some fishermen who are out on the on the high seas, and they spy a small boat adrift, and they pull alongside to help, and then we get get some more narration not by the uh not by the john larroquette style narration from the beginning but instead from brooke adams and she's lying there in the boat and you hear her saying in voiceover i don't know how long that dinghy floated around with me lying in it all i can remember was the sound of the water slapping against the side then i heard the engine sound getting closer that was when i realized i was still alive and it's Brooke Adams in the boat, delirious with terror. She is helped onto the fishing boat by the, the captain of the fishing boat, and, and she tries to tell her rescuers what happened, but she seems like she can't speak. She's just sitting there kind of catatonic, and she says in the, in the voiceover that it's only now that she remembers. So we immediately cut to the past and now we're on a pleasure boat, I guess. So we're not on the boat. We see like, you know, Brooke Adams is diving around a reef with flippers and the diving mask. And she says it was the second day on one of those small dive boats that takes you around the islands. The engine had broken down for the second time. Uh, and. Uh, yeah, immediately you notice something about the boat that I noticed too. Yeah, small dive boat is not how
1: I would, ex- I would describe this. This looks pretty big. I've this, been on some dive boats and, and they were all smaller than this.
0: Yeah, this is a large boat. But it is it is a large boat and it is a, it is a struggling boat. We have a struggle mm-hmm. boat here chugging around in the water as best it can. But they, they do communicate that this boat has seen better days. And then no fooling around, we have Carradine. We immediately yeah. get Carradine. Uh, as often happens. So Carradine, there are like two captains of the ship or Carradine is the captain, maybe. And uh, and and Stillwater Boy with the mustache is the first mate, maybe. But he mm-hmm. he's like steering the ship and John Carradine just chews him out a lot. But as often happens when we first meet John Carradine in this movie, he walks on set looking and sounding like he just ate three jars of capers right before he <laughs> came onto the camera. He's just he's just briny and dyspeptic from word one. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh he's saying like keep it half speed. No sense putting strain on a crankshaft. And, uh, there's immediately conflicts between them. Cause I guess, you know, you got, you got your old captain and you got your young captain. And old mm. captain is dressed like he's in some kind of auxiliary naval unit. This is, of course, carradine. And, and young Captain looks like 70s rock and roll. You know, he, mm-hmm. he, he's he been playing cards with Humble Pie, and now he's out here not taking his responsibilities seriously. And there's just some glorious chewing out that goes on. You know, John Carradine saying, it's north-northwest, not northwest, you slob. We must have accurate navigation, the sailor's best friend. Uh, and, oh, and he, he goes into this speech about how you can't be a good captain just by being good looking. It's his ability to navigate that makes him a good captain. (laughs) Also, did you notice that? So during the boat piloting scenes, there's a, a problem that I notice in a lot of movies, which is, an implausible amount of characters who are used to doing something talking about what they're doing, Mm. you know, so they're just saying back to back and forth to each other, steer one sixty-five and keep her steady and that kind of thing. But they're standing right next to each other. It just feels like the kind of thing that they wouldn't need to say out loud.
1: Yeah. Like even if this is the first day they've worked together and yeah, even though you have the, uh, you know, clearly the, the elder, uh, um, captain here, uh, you know, trying to instruct the, the younger seventies guy.
0: Yeah. Now immediately we get some spooky underwater stuff that we, we start seeing these shots of a sunken submarine and it's weird because in, in some ways I would say this movie is for the most part, not stylistically anything to write home about in terms of photography and all that. But there are, there are like a select number of underwater shots and shots of the zombies that are actually uh, very stylish and cool. And some of the underwater footage here where they, they capture uh, schools of fish sort of darting around back and forth in unison, and the synchronized swimming patterns uh, in, the, in the wreckage of this submarine we see at the bottom of the water. Uh, that, that's all great stuff.
1: Yeah, in its best moments, this film feels like a traumatic dream uh, yeah. you know, in the best way possible for a horror film.
0: But OK, so something spooky is under the water. The music lets us know, you know, as as we're going around this wreckage, there's something wrong with it, something supernaturally wrong. And then something happens with the sun. Everything turns orange. This is not really explained, and I didn't really get what was going on. But suddenly there's just an orange filter on the camera.
1: Yeah, I think, and I don't know how much of this is me reading into it knowing, you know, that they were high on the the morning of the magicians when they put this together. Mm -hmm. But I think this is like some sort of a solar phenomenon, or there's some sort of like, like, because later we we keep hearing from them about how the the compass isn't working anymore, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and clearly it's had some other weird effects on their surroundings. So perhaps it's kind of again, maybe kind of Texas Chainsaw Massacre in a way like that film opens up with this implied astrological disorder and maybe here we're getting a more overt astrological disorder.
0: Okay, so you know Saturn is in retrograde or something and that's when the zombies wake up from the bottom yeah. of the ocean. I see. Um so then we start meeting the other characters. Uh we 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 get to meet Norman and his wife Beverly. And they're arguing about whether the captain knows what he's doing. And and (laughs) it's great. Like Norman decides he's going to go up and help the captain steer the boat. Norman, as I said earlier, is a cranky, aggressive nerd.
1: Yeah, he's, he's 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 a joy to watch, but yeah. Yeah, he is such a such a, a a complainer. Like he just can't wait for Yelp to be invented so he can properly oh, yeah. review this dive company.
0: This guy is a, he's a terror at restaurants. He gets cashiers fired everywhere he goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but on the way up to, to chew out the captain, he meets Bacardi Man, who I think his name is Chuck, who mm-hmm. is more laid back. Uh, Bacardi Man is making a house of cards. One might say a bunker of cards. Mm-hmm. And his characteristics when we first meet him are that he's got his shirt unbuttoned, several more buttons down than than uh, Norman does. So you can tell he's he's cooler. And he just <laughs> drinks rum and chills out.
1: Yeah, just having, having rum and coke and, and stacking cards.
0: And then, of course, we meet Dobbs, the cook we already talked about, uh, who, who takes his Bacardi straight, unlike Chuck, <laughs> who likes his with Coca-Cola. And Dobbs is sort of Coleridge's ancient mariner. He, he's he got strong, uh, unhand-me, graybeard loon energy. <laughs> oh, and then they all meet up for dinner. And so during this dinner, you're supposed to be paying attention to the dialogue because John Carradine and Norman get into this big blow up about I don't know about wh- whether the ship is seaworthy or not I think but the main thing I couldn't stop paying attention to was this old school can of craft grated parmesan cheese on the table and the can looks blue. Huh. Now now that product is decidedly in a green can and I was trying to figure out okay were these cans blue in the 80s or are the colors screwed up on the film?
1: Yeah, or I get, well, this would have been 75, so maybe they were blue in the mid-70s. Oh,
0: the 70s, okay.
1: Or perhaps that astrological disorder, one of the things it did is it flipped the colors on the uh, Kraft grated Parmesan uh, uh, cheese canister. All your
0: products are blue now, yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Reverse polarity uh, and also change the color of grated Parmesan canisters. Uh Uh-huh. But let, let's get back to Norman's uh, mutiny <laughs> Wait, here.
0: What is Dobbs serving that with, though? He's got the grated Parmesan on the boat. Did he make Italian food? <laughs>
1: I guess. I mean, we see his kitchen later and it is yeah. awful looking. Like It's just yeah. it's got like just it's pinups like plastered to the wall, like like just a, like affixed in place with bile or something and chewing yeah. gum and then just like junk all over the floor. And it looks like there has been some just disaster. I mean, maybe the idea is supposed to have been at that point. There's been like uh, rough seas, but I don't know. It just looks looks gross.
0: He lights the burner on his stove with old Playboys. yeah. Uh, but as I was saying earlier, Norman does not like the way Carradine is running things, and he—I think he—he he basically, literally proposes a mutiny. Like he talks yeah. the other—he's uh, trying to talk the other tourists into taking over the boat.
1: Yeah, he—they're—they're they're like, what? You—you're going to take over? He's like, no, we'll have one of these other people do it. They're idiots, but they can do it. Like he's—he's he's yeah. just awful
0: to everybody. He's just like, we'll have Dobbs drive the boat. <laughs> uh, and this seems to be a reaction to quote what happened earlier. Uh, And to some unspecified story that Dobbs allegedly told about spooky doings out on the ocean. But, again, what actually happened earlier? Like, the sky turned orange, but I don't get what happened that it is they're reacting to.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Just sort of general uh, Bermuda Triangleness occurred. You know, the sky went weird. The sun went weird. Compasses aren't working. Maybe they felt weird as well. I don't know.
0: You know, there's a great scene where Brooke Adams – is she supposed to be married to Bacardi Man no, uh,
1: oh, okay. I, it may not be completely clear in the early stages as we're trying to feel out these characters, but it becomes clear that, yeah, they're not married.
0: Oh, OK, OK. Um, but she after this, it's like the middle of the night and uh, and and Maximum Mustache is driving the boat and Brooke Adams comes up to talk to him. Uh, and it's great. So it's like nighttime out on the ocean. And we find out from this conversation that he likes to be alone up here and he doesn't know where they are. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, but then uh, their their little moment is interrupted because a ghost ship comes out of the dark and slams into their boat. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and so they, they argue about this. John Carradine does not believe it. He's like, oh, the ghost ship, huh? I bet you believe in fairies, too. <laughs> uh, but then they find a bunch of damage on the hull and they shoot a flare out into the dark. And there it is. And it, this is a good creepy scene. Yeah, yeah. Because what's going on? Where did this ghost ship come from? But then in the morning, uh all kinds of problems. In the morning, the boat is beached on a mysterious island. Uh, Captain Carradine is just gone. And so everybody has to go ashore until they can get the ship free of the, uh, the the shoal that it has run aground on. Oh, and then I mentioned this moment earlier, but while Norman and Beverly are being rowed ashore by Keith, they're being rowed ashore in a glass-bottom dinghy, which I've never mm-hmm. heard of before. I mean, I've heard of glass-bottom boats, but those usually tend to be... Know, have more passengers i think
1: i guess it's because since this is supposed to be a vacation boat they mm-hmm. they just have a glass bottom boat um on, on hand yeah. uh but yeah it, it's effective because yeah they're 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 moving right along and then there's Carradine's corpse just bobbing up against the glass
0: yeah he's bubbling in the water right train to mundo pene hey and so, anyway, on the island, uh, Bacardi man climbs a palm tree, he sees a building, and so they're like, "Okay, that's where we're going." So everybody hikes through the jungle to reach this building, which is a sort of classic uh, Caribbean or, or Florida kind of Spanish opulent style.
1: Yeah, so I want to mention real quick this is pretty fun because this uh, this this is this hotel. Uh, that we visit here is uh, is very much a real place in Florida this ruined hotel they apparently paid something like $250 to rent the entire thing for the picture mm-hmm. um, but it was um it was subsequently fixed back up a few years later and is uh, is known as the the Biltmore Hotel it's in Coral Gables Florida just outside of Miami and uh, you can look it up online you can go to biltmorehotel.com uh, and see it it is um it's super fancy. Uh, the story here, according to Jason Scott Deegan at Golf Pass, that's where I always go to get my sh- my stories about uh, <laughs> sets in, uh, in 70s zombie movies, mm-hmm. um, it, it opened in the 20s and was uh, the sort of fancy Florida destination for the likes of Al Capone and President Franklin D. Roosevelt. But then it was converted into a hospital in 1942 and it remained one all the way through 1968. Uh, and then it was just empty for more than a decade. And that was during that time, that's when they filmed shockwaves there. But then Coral Gables had it renovated and it opened back up in 87, entered private ownership in 1992. And I checked earlier if you want to get a room there, it's like, two hundred and sixty eight dollars a night or something like that um, uh, that probably changes don't quote me on that if you're planning to stay there but <laughs> the the point is they they rented the whole thing when it was a ruin for uh, for the duration of the filming for just 250 bucks and so there are going to be some scenes in shockwaves where they're in like some sizable hallways and you see some columns and a, and a big fireplace in the background. It's fun because you can, you can pause the film and then you can go grab your computer and you can look up current, uh, photos and you can see like those same places, uh, that are now super fancy and ritzy and colorful and just, you know, uh, done, done up like a fancy golf course, um, hotel. Uh, and I'm looking at that. And I'm like, Oh man, how many people are walking through that and they don't
0: realize that Peter Cushing was here, they, you know? Right. Hey, this was yeah. this was uh, shockwaves. No idea. They've never been on the shockwaves tour. I was thinking. So okay, if they had wanted to go a true direction, then with this hotel, instead of the uh, you know SS zombies direction, they could have embraced the fact that this was where Al Capone and Franklin D Roosevelt came. So they could have zombie, I guess, uh, prohibition, <laughs> uh, like liquor smugglers, and then they could yeah. have uh, what I don't know, zombie members of the civilian conservation corps. I guess that doesn't zing as well does it.
1: <laughs> but it could have changed the course like that's that's of of of, of media. That's where we, what we would we would have in video games now. It would be uh um you know zombie bootlegger uh video games. That would be the big craze. Well,
0: that can maybe be interesting. I don't know. I don't
1: know. <laughs> Anyway, in this film, though, yeah, the place looks is, is just an effective Florida ruin, and I think it's one of the things that makes that helps make the movie work is that this is this is like the ruined splendor of Florida, um, which you inevitably encounter um, uh, you know examples of. you know you can't have you know coastal tourism exist in a place uh, w- without things following in falling into disrepair and becoming kind of uh, you know mysterious or half mysterious ruins.
0: Yeah. So it's a good setting. And I would say uh, this moment is also where the movie shifts gears and it it goes into what it remains actually for the remainder of the movie mostly which is shots of zombies lumen goggle mm. zombies again there's excellent costume and makeup design because it's pretty simple they're just in these old uniforms and they've got kind of messed up looking skin and then they have these goggles and the go- the goggles are just bottomless pits it's really good
1: yeah it it all comes together to make a very evocative um, uh, adversary here. And at first, they just seem to be scouting things out like they've been they've clearly been awakened. And now they're scoping out the joint.
0: So meanwhile, our, our tourists uh, wander through the old hotel, uh, Bacardi Man and Dobbs, who is also swigging Bacardi, they uh, they find a tank full of fish. I mean, are these frog fish that it, it, like your uh, your checklist for Florida movies? It has tanks of fish in it.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm not sure offhand what this was. Maybe scorpion fish, but either way, it's got some big zat energy going on, and and I love it. Yeah. And Dobbs, it becomes clear, has this, this never-ending supply of booze on his person. He pulls out mm-hmm. the largest flask I've ever seen in some of these these scenes. Like it's not a hip flask; it's like a a leg flask. It's like a backpack flask. Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, but also at this point it's cushing time so hmm. they're they're wandering around oh well the, i think they somehow come across a uh, like an, there's like an old phonograph that starts playing warped creepy music and everybody comes and finds that thing and they're standing in this big hallway and then from out of somewhere, you get you get Cushing voice, kind of nasal Cushing voice, disembodied, eternal, saying, "Why have you come to this place?" And they say, "Where are you?" And he says, "I am near, but also far, but <laughs> <Quite And, alert. laughs> Yeah. And so from this conversation, uh, let's see, they explain how they got here. Uh, Cushing tells them he can't help them. They explain the ghost ship that uh, that rammed their boat. Actually, it is a long wrecked ship that's out on the reef. And then this was pretty funny. Cushing just freaks out at this news and then you see him and, uh, he learns the name of the ship and he just sort of busts out running through the forest to go look at it.
1: Mm hmm. It's kind of a, an interesting twist on, on what you might expect in a lot of these films where, uh, I mean, and not too big of a twist. I guess there's, there's always this idea that the, the mastermind or the mad scientist involved in a scenario is going to be consumed by his own creations. But there's never even any idea, uh, like even a pretense, that he has control over these things. Like, no. he's, he's afraid of them as everyone else from the get-go. He just has a
0: little more information. Right, exactly. So so he goes out there to look at them. He clearly is – he's shaken. Uh, meanwhile, the tourists establish camp within Hotel SS. They just, mm-hmm. like, go into a room and they start getting pillows and mattresses. Yeah, might as well get comfy. Yeah, they get comfy. And uh, – oh, and then there's this great shot. Again, most of what's the best about this movie is just good, creepy shots of, of zombies with, in, in goggles doing creepy stuff. One of my favorites is this moment that's coming right up where the zombies – have like these little cubicles of coral that they appear to be sleeping in they're like laying down horizontally in these little Mm. boxes around the reef and there's one scene where one of them reaches up from below the water and grips the part of the reef that protrudes it's it's very cool
1: yeah so again this is one of the scenes like imagery from a dark
0: dream yeah But anyway, we're 40 minutes in, and I think we've just officially reached the zombie attack part of the movie, and that defines the rest of what goes on. There's two main things that happen from here on out. It's zombies being creepy, looming, looking at you with the goggles, and zombies grabbing people and, and killing them.
1: Yeah, and, uh, and and it's it's pretty effective because you have you have basically two locations, go, well, three, I guess. There's the surf and out in the water. There's the sort of Florida coastal jungle, and then there are the ruins of the hotel. And and in all of those, the the uh, the, the death corps troopers here, they man, they just they they move around in very interesting ways. They're not like shambling zombies. They're very deliberate and. Yeah. Um, and, and slow and stealthy, like when they, they, they stalk and hunt their prey in this, and it's uh, it's it's
0: very unsettling. There is a moment where uh, the cook, Dobbs, he goes out to get supplies to cook food for everybody. I don't know what he plans to cook it on, but uh, he, he does that. And he, I guess he's coming back with food supplies from the boat. And he gets attacked by a goggle beast, but the attack is interesting in the, the goggle beast does not grab him. Instead, it menaces him until he falls to his death in a pool of sea urchins. And I think Mm. that is a, a first and only for me. I don't think I've ever seen pit of sea urchins otherwise used as a murder weapon in a movie.
1: Uh, I, I winced when I saw this. It's been a while since I've seen it, so I'd forgotten about this scene. But I've certainly have been around sea urchins, uh, and, you know, sometimes when I'm in the water with them. And, yeah, you, you, you have that in the back of your head. I don't want to touch that. I certainly don't want to fall on it with my face like Dobbs mm. does. Uh, so this one gave me the all-overs. Yeah.
0: Oh, and then it's funny. Everybody discovers that Dobbs has died when Brooke Adams puts on the bathing suit and decides to go swimming in this fetid pond full of sea urchins.
1: Yeah, Well, it's hot. It's hot out there.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but she just she literally bumps right into him. So he's all mangled laying there in the reeds and she she backstrokes into him and then yeah. you know, freaks out. Whoops.
1: This movie has more finding of drowned uh, characters than any other film I've seen. Uh, but it's, it is very well done. Like each discovery is is horrific and even though like all the kill, I think all the kills in this film are bloodless. Uh, but they're still, yeah. they tend to be disturbing.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, the, the, they're disturbing because of the atmosphere, the music, the, you know, the goggles and all that. It's, uh, yeah, it, you don't need blood to be to be disturbing. In fact, uh, I was actually just talking about this with, with Rachel not too long ago, about how when you go back and watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's surprising how little blood there is in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, yeah, so it's definitely similar uh, energy in this. But there's even less in this than there is in that. Mm -hmm. But anyway, uh, so everybody goes back to the hotel. And in the meantime, I don't know what to make of this. Suddenly they go back to the hotel and there's stuff there that I don't remember seeing the previous time, which is that, like, Cushing has, like, swastika crap hanging up. He's, like, like, put up Nazi decorations since they – were last in his area? Is that is that what we're supposed to understand?
1: Uh, I thought it was maybe just a section of this big hotel that we hadn't seen yet. Oh, but okay. yeah, he has it decorated with a billion mirrors, which yes. I don't know, maybe that's some sort of anxiety about things creeping up on him, like mm-hmm. his, his own creations here. or uh, And then he has the, the, the Nazi flags up. Um, but, but this is all we see of his life here. There's no mad science lab or anything. There's no even no. In, inclination that he's been up to anything. The past, um, you know, what, ever since the end of the the Second World War, he's just been hanging out here in this ruined hotel, just doing nothing. What's he eating?
0: What's he surviving on? I I don't know.
1: He's not. He's not doing great, though. I mean, he, no. he looks really shabby. In this. Yes,
0: he does. I don't uh, think I've
1: ever seen Peter Cushing in short sleeves before, but he's got these raggedy <laughs> short sleeves and a kerchief tied around his neck. I mean, he looks he looks
0: shipwrecked the whole time. That's a good point. I did not notice the Cushing short sleeves, but you're right, and th- that is a define. I mean, Cushing Cushing is somebody who needs a jacket and tie. Mm-hmm. That's part of who he is. Yeah, uh, but here is so here we get our exposition dump. <laughs> Should we have exposition dump music that plays every time we get to that part of the plot? I don't know, Seth, I'll let you decide that. Anyway, uh, but exposition dump. Cushing uh, is, is now explains everything to them. He's hanging out with Norman and, and Chuck and and these goobers and and he's very succinct though.
1: Like he yes. doesn't mess around. There's no gloating. He just tells it like it seems to be.
0: No, here here are the facts from his exposition dump. It is: you are dumb. You should have left. Now you will die. Allow me to explain. I was an SS commander in World War II. I commanded a group of aquatic zombie SS troops that could live underwater without ever having to surface. Uh, and then there was one part I wanted to quote because it was so weird. He says, We created the perfect soldier from street hoodlums and thugs and a good number of pathological murderers and sadists. We called them the Toten Corps, the Death Corps. Creatures more horrible than any you can imagine, not dead, not alive, but somewhere in between. And then he starts complaining about how they wouldn't obey orders and couldn't be controlled. But he Mm -hmm. says they made them. They just like tried to get pathological murderers and sadists. And then he starts complaining about how they would not obey orders and could not be controlled. And at the end of the war, Cushing came to this island, I guess, to escape justice. And he sank the ship containing the Death Corps. And uh, somehow, in the past couple of days, the ship unsank. And the Death Corps are now on the loose. Oh, Andy pulls out his Luger and he says, Now I want you to leave. If I see any of you at all, I will shoot on sight. Yep. And they're like,
1: Okay, fair enough. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, so then Cushing, he starts running around. I couldn't quite understand what it was he was trying to do at this point. But he goes out wading in the water and then uh, – I didn't, did you understand what he was trying to do at this point?
1: Yeah. So I my read on this, and it could be incorrect, is that is that I think ultimately dis- that he was trying to distract them, trying to oh, distract okay. the death corps. Because even though he's like, you guys are dumb, I told you how to get away and you didn't, and now you're just going to die, like all of us are going to die. Mm-hmm. There there are a couple of lines where he admits some level of responsibility for uh, all the deaths that have occurred because of these things. Yeah. And so there's kind of a sense, but not like a super, like, hammy sense, but there's this—I kind of got a sense that he was, he was trying to distract them. Because he's, like, calling to the death core. And he yeah, knows yeah, yeah, he can't yeah. control them. So the only— alternative seems to be that he wants to distract uh them away from the others
0: so that they can uh possibly escape and live um it's harder to buy him as remorseful given that he's still hanging up swastika flags where he lives
1: yeah he's not like i'm not saying he's a he's not a character you feel for yeah but but that that that's the only thing that makes any sense within the context of the plot, you know, yeah. because I uh, otherwise, yeah, I just I can't think of anything else. So listeners, if you've seen the film and you have an answer to this, let us know. But I think that's what they were going for.
0: Yeah, well, eventually. So he's running around all over the place. And at some point he stops and lays down next to a pond to drink some stagnant giardia water. And a zombie just reaches up out of the water, pulls him in, drowns him. Yeah. Good scene. Good scene. End of Cushing. Yeah. Uh, Meanwhile, the tourists are trying to escape on a boat that Peter Cushing has told them about. It's just like a little rowboat. And there was a really funny scene of Norman, the aggressive, angry nerd, carrying around his suitcases while he's trying to get in the boat. Yeah, he still
1: has all of his baggage. (laughs) He's ready to climb on this tiny boat with several other people. And, of course, they call him on it. They're like, what are you Uh, doing?
0: I know several of us have died, but I still have five suitcases I need to bring with us.
1: Yeah. And then when they tell him he can't bring them, he like throws a mini tantrum. He's kind of like, oh, fine. Like, I'm yeah. mad. I'm yeah. mad. Don't get to keep my suitcase.
0: What, one of the bags he's bringing with him looks like it's a folding, one of those bags you, you transport suits in. You know, so He's <laughs> got like formal wear with him. Yeah. He's going to need that tuxedo after they escape. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, they're, they're trying to escape on a tiny rowboat. Um, this part I thought had some pretty cool shots of them, like paddling around through these mazes of mangrove roots while the goggle boys are lurking beneath and all around spying on them. This, this part I thought was creepy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but then it just turns into a, a parade of errors, mishap after mishap. Uh, they run into a mud bank. They have to try to run the boat out of it. Beverly falls out. People go after her. Rose gets knocked out of the boat. That Rose is Brooke Adams. And then eventually, after a bunch of screwing around, the boat floats away under sail with no passengers. Whoops. Whoops.
1: Yeah. So now they've they've really failed. Uh, well, they failed for the second time here because yeah. now there's nothing they can do but run back to the hotel.
0: Right. So there are various chases now. Everybody's running around in different places. Norman gets attacked in the water and killed by by Norman. Um, Brooke Adams gets chased. But there's a there's a cool moment where she manages to kill one of the the zombies by knocking its goggles off. Uh, Here, again, do you understand what was going on here? So the goggles come off and then somehow its face like rapidly rots.
1: I think it's like they're susceptible to the light. Like if the light gets in there, the sunlight gets in their eyes, it uh, destroys them. And, uh, you know, we were also told that they draw their energy from the earth itself. So I think that's one of the reasons, I guess, that we have all those scenes of them like in the water walking along on the bottom of the seafloor like it's nothing, like they have some sort of supernatural connection
0: to the earth. Mm Mm-hmm. Some sort of warped pagan magic that was co opted by the the baddies. Okay, that would make sense. Uh, anyway, meanwhile, back at the hotel, uh, so the remaining tourists uh, Chuck, Keith, Beverly, and Rose they decide to hole up in a refrigerator overnight mm-hmm. by locking the door, hiding in there. We get to watch the zombies. A big walk of...
1: in, <laughs> not, not, yeah, not, yes, not, yeah. not not like your refrigerator in your house, that right? <laughs> but a big one, a big walk in <laughs> freezer thing,
0: and it doesn't have power, so it's not like cold in there. Mm. Uh, but there, we get to watch the zombies wrecking the hotel. They're just like smashing mirrors and everything. Mm-hmm. And then inside the fridge, this is the moment I mentioned where uh, Chuck has this kind of out of character freak out. He just starts ranting and screaming and hyperventilating. He's saying, Let me out. I'll take my chances. I, maybe he's claustrophobic or something. I guess so. Yeah. But it's revealed he's got a flare gun. He starts pointing the flare gun at people and he accidentally shoots it. I think this blinds Beverly. Um, And it's during the scene where they like all have to run out of the refrigerator because Chuck has shot this flare gun inside it that I noticed finally that Keith is wearing bell bottoms. And I suppose he (laughs) has been the entire movie. Oh, but of course, of course he has. Makes perfect sense. So then we're into end game basically. Uh like Chuck is running around, he's he's showing off his muscles and he's trying to fight back against the zombies, but he falls into a pool and he gets killed by zombies.
1: Yeah, um, he effectively clotheslines lines one of them. Yeah. But then they get him and that that pool death scene is pretty horrifying. Now, again, the, the 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 sort of vacation world ruins
0: of this place. Yeah. Uh, Keith and Rose actually successfully hide till morning, I think, inside a furnace. They, Mm -hmm. like, open this metal grate and hide in there. And then in the morning when they come out, they find Beverly dead in a fish tank. Yep. And they find Chuck dead in a pool, so then it's just to escape mode. It's, you know, they're trying to escape in a boat. Uh, Keith doesn't do so well either. He gets dragged out of the boat multiple times, and eventually we get yet another uh, sighting of a corpse through the glass bottom. And it is only Brooke Adams who makes it out, but even does she really? Like the other Florida movies we've watched, this one has a downer ending where really nobody wins.
1: Yeah, a real gut punch of an ending, because first of all, everyone except Rose has been murdered by the Death Corps, like Mm -hmm. everybody, uh, except, well, the fisherman uh, and his son at the beginning. They're good. Oh, yeah, they're doing okay. Yeah, they're doing all right. But everybody else dead. And even though she survives being adrift at sea for days without water, she's obviously left terribly traumatized. And the account that she's been writing down in in her journal, there's this really awesome scene there at the end where the camera pans around and we see that she's been writing. We we assume she's writing the narration. She's writing her story. But then we see that her journal is filled with nothing but nonsensical scribbles. So you have this this very classic weird horror ending as our protagonist has survived physically, but not mentally from a brush with
0: supernatural horror. This is actually extremely close to the ending of Zat, where it seems like all of the human characters uh, who are not catfishified mm-hmm. are either dead or there's one who was apparently saved, but now just wants to march into the ocean.
1: Yeah, though, the I guess the thing is that at least you feel good for uh Dr. Leopold because it's like, well, Dr. Leopold won. He got what he wanted. And I guess it's good for the fish.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. But in this,
1: like, <laughs> nobody really wins. Like, the, I mean, I guess the death corps wins, but they don't really want things. They just murder, you know? So it's just, it's kind of a nihilistic ending. Um, but feels feels you know uh, um honestly 1970s you know it's kind of the it, it, it also reminds us a little bit of texas chainsaw massacre yeah. where in that oh, uh, yeah. our final girl gets away but she's like laughing maniacally there's a sense that that yeah that perhaps she has not survived completely uh survived physically but not uh you know uh mentally or emotionally
0: oh well i guess you could read it that way but then then again i don't know i I can scarcely think of a movie ending where the protagonist escaping danger is as cathartic and feels as rewarding as the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. True, yeah. Like, when she gets into the truck and gets away at the end of TCM, like – that is probably, like, the biggest, like, just absolutely visceral in-the-body sense of relief I can think of in any movie I've ever seen.
1: You're right. It really – it does feel like a victory at the end yeah. of TCM. Like, she has gotten away. Leatherface is defeated um, and, and gets it. Uh, in this, though, yeah, the baddies, for the most part, didn't get it. And she's in kind of a sad state. So, yeah, it's a – like I say, a gut punch of an ending, but one that feels – um you know, on, on message for this film.
0: But we don't get to see the death core doing chainsaw ballet on the beach like we do with uh, Leatherface. Yeah.
1: <laughs> All right. So what? It, let's see, Florida movie checklist. We had Florida ruins. We had oppressive Florida wilderness. We had mm-hmm. marine life in tanks. We had electronic music. And we had a dark ending. Um, so really, the only things we're lacking that were present in previous movies are, well, I was going to say shots of animals in the wild, but we do have some fish uh, scenes early on. So Mm -hmm. sea urchins. uh, Yeah, just, yes, sea urchins are in there. Just maybe not as much wildlife as we saw in frogs, certainly, uh, or in that. And also, we don't have an ecological message.
0: That's true. This one, uh, those two movies, both, even if it was maybe not super well articulated, they, they, yeah, they've got an ecological message. I don't think this movie really has any message at all. Yeah. none, None that is intended. If it is, it's just like don't create a death core. No, do not <laughs> screw around with making undead superhuman Nazi soldiers.
1: Yeah, or properly research your um your your scuba uh, outlets before you can go on a vacation. I don't <laughs> know, but uh, but yeah, this this one I I think is is pretty effective. I I remember seeing. I think I saw the last maybe thirty percent of it on tbs or tnt back in the day like saw it during the day mm-hmm. uh, at, at my grandparents house and was really creeped Whoa. out at, by it and it's a, it's actually it's a great horror movie to have seen during the day because most of the action takes place in the day like yeah. it it makes daytime in florida um horrifying uh mm-hmm. you know effectively horrifying it doesn't have to be dark in florida for you to be afraid
0: actually this violates a lot of rules about movie monsters. Uh, Usually I think movie monsters are better when seen less, when kept in the dark more uh, you know, following the Jaws rule, like if you're mm-hmm. going to finally see the monster, you want to wait towards the end of the movie to do it. This movie, no, is just putting its monsters front and center, tons of screen time, showing you all the time. Uh, Much like Zad, actually, but <laughs> very different from Zad. The monsters look very menacing in this, and it actually works better when you see a ton of them.
1: Yeah, yeah. And in fact, there, yeah, there's one scene in particular where... I think we've we've effectively killed one of them at this point. Mm-hmm. You pull the goggles off, and then we still see there's so many. And uh, I, 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 I mean, chalk it up to a good film. I was, I was I, when that happened in my recent reviewing of it. I was like, oh my goodness! Like I felt my heart sink. There were so many of them, even though I I knew what was going to happen.
0: I wonder what those goggles actually were. Were they like welding goggles? What do you think that was they were wearing? I don't know. They
1: they look familiar, but I don't know where I've seen them before. But um, mm-hmm. but good find, costuming department on that. Yeah. Good job. All right. So you're probably wondering, where can I see Shockwaves? Well, uh, I mentioned that I used to own it on Blue Underground, on DVD from Blue Underground. And I think it's on Blu-ray from Blue Underground as well. Um, I misplaced it over the years, but it's it's really good. It's got a lot of good extras. It's a great uh, um, restoration of the film, I think, to a certain degree. Uh, there's a certain 70s graininess to this mm-hmm. film that I think is essential. Like I wouldn't want to see it in too fine a quality. You know, it ne- it needs that that seventies ness to it. Uh, but yeah, the Blue Underground edition is nice. Has some fun extras. You can also rent it digitally, buy it digitally most places. And if you want, uh, if if you if you want to find like a, a, a sort of a. A loophole to get it. I have noticed that uh, if you do a free trial of the Full Moon Entertainment Channel, like you can get through like Amazon <laughs> Prime, uh, you know, do, like a seven-day trial, uh, you can you can watch Shockwaves through that channel.
0: There's a Charles Band app now. <laughs> Um, I guess it's
1: an app. Yeah, it's at least it's the Amazon Prime channel, and I think you can get it on. It's probably on like Roku and stuff like that. I, I don't. I'm, I'm not super versed in all that. Okay. But but yeah, there's there are some ways to see this if you don't if you don't want to you know straight up rent or buy it or or pick up that DVD. But uh, yeah,
0: subscribe to BandTube. <laughs> I didn't check Tubi to see if it was on Tubi. Oh yeah, I didn't either. Yeah. You know, you were talking about the look of this movie. One thing, last thing I have to say, I realized is. The look of this movie is a blue can of craft grated Parmesan cheese from the seventies <laughs> that, that's what the aesthetic is,
1: yes, all right well, on that note, uh we would love to hear from everyone out there about your memories uh especially you know from from older listeners, your memories of craft cheese canisters of the mid-1970s. Uh, when did it change? Why did it change? Did it change? I don't know. Um, have you seen this movie? Did you see see it on TBS back in the day when you were a child and when were partially traumatized by it, um, like me? Or, uh, you know, did you check it out later? Uh, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, you just in general, about other films we've done on Weird House Cinema, uh, films you think we should cover in the future, or like a, a lot of our listeners, just continue to, to write in uh, about Sean Connery's accent in Highlander and to what degree it makes sense and what kind of uh, backflips we have to do
0: mentally to, to have it make sense. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. you. Stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.